Now I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Ms. Anat Admati. Anat Admati is the George G.C. Parker Professor of Finance and Economics at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. She has written extensively on information dissemination in financial markets, trading mechanisms, portfolio management, financial contracting, and most recently, on corporate governance and banking. Since 2010, she has been active in the policy debate on financial regulation, which is the subject of the new book she's co-authored, The Banker's New Clothes. Please give a warm welcome to Anat Admati. Thank you. In the crisis, in 2008, especially when everything seemed to fall apart, Everybody got interested in what seems to be what I was doing every day, which wasn't usually as much in the news, not in the front page anyway, and not in a good way. And so, like other people, I was quite interested and quite nervous and scared about what was going on. Uh, But uh, unlike maybe some people, I was able to try to follow what was being said. And I became interested in what it was that people saying and why they were saying it and what they were not saying and why they were not saying it. So um, I started asking a bunch of questions of people just mostly around me in the beginning and then more broadly, what was going on with this system? What kind of system did we have and could it be a better system? Why did it harm the economy so much as it did? Um, something seemed wrong with it. And um, it wasn't clear quite what it is, but it became clear to me what it is. And when I opened more of the literature and even some of the textbooks about uh, banking, I discovered that it was, uh, something seemed wrong with it. Uh, So my fears were confirmed, something was wrong. But then, of course, I wasn't part of this, this was not my expertise, and, But uh, I started speaking up a little bit uh, more and uh, written papers, written policy papers, written op-eds for a while. Uh, And yet it seemed like uh, there was just a lot of, well, a lot of nonsense that was being said. And other things that were not obvious nonsense, but when you look at them closely where something was wrong with them, there were flawed arguments. And it seemed like... Everybody seemed to have a story that they liked to tell about what went on and what to do, and they kind of had it all figured out. And there was very little um, inclination on the part of many people involved to actually engage in discussion because they got they had it figured out supposedly. They knew what happened, and they had they wanted to start at a particular point and talk from then on, and uh, the narrative worked for them. And uh, so there was a lack of engagement, and then there was just a massive apparent misunderstanding. It was hard to tell anymore what people knew and what they wanted to know, so it became very confusing that way. I'd talk to people, say, why is the person saying that? And then they would say, well, they just, it works for them to say it, or other people would say, they don't really understand it. And so it's like, really? Okay. So... Um, I would be told, well, you have to explain it to people. 
Um, so I explained it at a higher level, and that didn't seem to be good enough. So um, after a while of that, it seemed to go nowhere, because where things were settled, I will tell you my assessment, uh, was not in a good place uh, until maybe some more crisis. Uh, and I was told at some point, oh, you'll be in good shape for the next crisis. You'll say, I told you so. Uh, why didn't you listen to me? Um, but uh, for some reason, I just couldn't quite give up yet. So then it was like, okay, what's next? And so what next was to really um, unpack it all into little pieces that could sort of be strong uh, so that basically everybody can understand, because it's not that hard, uh, not rocket science. We don't do idioms, but basically, it's not that hard. Uh, so um, people can understand it. It's not that fancy. And they actually want you to think it's very complicated. So one of the lobbying or one of the tactics uh, in the policy is it's very hard. It's very complicated. <laughs> You can't possibly understand this stuff. Just leave it to the experts. Um, so, um, so I undertook this uh, this book with uh, with my colleague uh, Martin Helwig, who is in Bonn, and he has been in banking for longer than me. So he knew a lot of the literature much better than I did, and he has come to a similar conclusion. In fact, the reason uh, I've known him from, from way back, but we haven't talked for like 20 or 25 years. Uh, however, when I read narratives of the crisis or analysis of the crisis, that's the one that made sense to me, his. And therefore, uh, we started collaborating, and we collaborated with other people, but on the book, um, there, there were barely two people that could work on that, no more, and that was hard enough. <laughs> so anyway, um, so here's the diagnosis uh, for you. It's kind of going to be bad news. People like to complain, and if I just wanted to complain, I wouldn't write this book, because we actually want to say there's something to do. So it's more than educating and complaining. It's actually an advocacy book and a policy book. Uh, so the assessment is very grim. This system hasn't changed very much since the financial crisis. If anything, there are ways in which it's a little bit better, but there are actually ways in which it's worse. Um, the banks that were big were, are bigger now. Uh, some of them are considered too big to fail. Uh, that's extremely dangerous situation and very distorted. And it's a very, very inefficient system. Um, it exposes us to unnecessary risks. It basically works for very few people. Uh, and for most of us, it actually is not a good system. Uh, and the, but the good news is that it doesn't have to be like that. What they tell you about how this is the best we can have and this is the way the system must be is just wrong. So that's kind of the, the basic message. It doesn't have to be like that. And one of the uh, key diagnoses about what's wrong with the system and the reason for a lot of the inefficiencies, a lot of the danger, a lot of the excessive risk that's going on is that the system is built on too much borrowing, too much debt. It's a very simple idea, uh, but when you start lo looking at banks as borrowers, as people who take on a lot of debt on themselves, which is not usually the way you think about it, but it is really key to understanding what's wrong with them, uh, you realize that's kind of the, that's, that's an addiction that they have. 
And uh, we have a system that actually paradoxically and perversely feeds that addiction and enables this addiction. And no wonder they respond and uh, act and compete to uh, consume more of that addictive substance, borrowing, which is, means funding everything all the time by making promises to pay back. And that's the way they like to fund. Well, in the rest of the economy, that's not as common and anywhere near as prevalent as in banking. We have corporations without any regulation that just don't borrow very much. Most corporations don't borrow very much. Most individuals and businesses couldn't borrow very much. They couldn't borrow as much as the banks could. Nobody gets to those levels of borrowing. We're talking about buying a mansion with a little bit of down payment for a corporation that has access to investors like other people. Look at all the high-tech companies where I come from. They don't bother borrowing. And we don't force them not to borrow. So banks are corporations. They, too, can ask investors to give them money to invest if they have good things to do with the money, just like other corporations. They can ask some more. How do they borrow? Well, they start by borrowing from all of us. Our deposits are their debt. When we give them our money for safekeeping, they owe it to us. That's what the Cyprian people also think. They owe it to them. I just discovered they actually promised people in Cyprus, and including all the Russians, 4 or 5%. That's above market rates. I was just got a chart today that said that $100, 100 euros invested in Germany in 2008 wouldn't give you as much as investing in Cyprus, even with the haircut. I was shocked. But what it shows, and we can get to Cyprus later, is that uh, if you were to promise such rates, you have to take risk. And if you take risk, who's going to bear the losses when it doesn't work? Very simple. Well, they must have thought the Germans would, in any case. <laughs> so what to do? Very simple. Fight the addiction. They want to speed. They want to borrow. Make them borrow less, or make them borrow as much, but also back them up, not by relying on government guarantees on deposit insurance, but by investors that would bear the downside as they get the upside. If they have a value that they are creating, they can go to investors, and investors will give them uh, money in exchange for shares, just like other corporations can do. Maybe they don't want to do that. And that's because their incentives are not there, because they don't like the prices that investors give them. But that's partly because they manage to be very opaque, and investors fear what's there or not, what they see and what they don't see. And so investors are not giving them as much money as they think they should get. Investors think they've lost more than they admit they lost. So they have accounting values that they report that are higher than what investors are willing to pay them. Well, it's just the market's way of telling them they lost money. Uh, and um, so they don't like what investors, how the way investors treat them. They instead go to lobby to uh, be allowed to borrow some more. So that's one of the diagnoses. Now, where are we? Well, where we're settled on financial reform, and don't let anybody tell you any different, is not very much that's actually changed. There's a lot of talk 
the implementation of a massive piece of legislation called Dodd-Frank is in a mess, basically. There are many, many parts to it, and we're not going to go through it. The key parts of it basically allow the regulators and give authority to regulators to do everything they need to do. The problem is not what the authority is or what the law is. The problem is what the regulators actually do, which is a question about what they want to do and what they think they need to do, which is not enough, basically. So they allow this system to be unnecessarily dangerous and distorted. The new regulations that banks are complaining about so much allow them to fund 97% or certainly more than 90% of their investments with borrowing and put very little equity, 3%, 5%. Depends how you do the accounting, but single-digit numbers. Nobody in the economy funds like this. Nobody lives so close to the edge. Nobody can even. The banks themselves wouldn't lend to somebody who was as dangerous as they are. <laughs> so they want to apply these principles just not to themselves. Um, and the problem with that is if a, diff if a corporation got to that point that they were so highly indebted, then they, when they failed, their creditors would suffer. Of course, the creditors anticipating this would charge them high rates. But in banking, the creditors are a little nicer than they would have been to other companies because they each have their way of thinking they're going to get paid somehow, they're going to get out somehow, they're going to walk away with their collateral somehow. They have various ways in which, or they're insured depositors like us. We don't worry about the risks because we know that the FDIC will pay us back, and that's rightly so, and we have a deposit insurance so that we don't run to the ATMs. Uh, because uh, FDIC is very effective about that, but FDIC is insured itself by the government. Even if it goes back charging the banks, there's a whole story about how somehow or other everybody in this system is actually subsidized in the way that their borrowing is subsidized. Not just that they're subsidized, but exactly their activity that harms is subsidized. As if with this borrowing being a pollutant for the system, it is what we encourage them to do. It's a very paradoxical system because it's through there that we deliver the subsidies. They compete then to pollute. And why is their indebtedness polluting? Because when one of them fails, there is a variety of mechanisms that create a sort of contagion, like a set of dominoes that's standing next to one another. The mechanisms are explained in the book. Uh, some of them are just contractual commitments. If I fail and you, I owe you money, then I don't pay you the money that I owe you, so then you become weaker, etc. So they have this way in which they lend to one another, borrow from one another, so they are intertwined that way, very much knotted up. Then there are ways in which, you know, when I become distressed, I start selling asset, fire sales, and then everybody's selling at the same time, the prices get depressed, we get weaker, it's a sort of vicious cycle. There's that. Then there is a contagion of just, you know, fears and information. Oh, if the banks in Cyprus can fail, then maybe the banks in Spain can fail. And so they're always afraid of this sort of inferring. So if here's money market, broke the, broke the buck, then other money markets, if one Lehman Brothers fail, maybe the other investments, because we don't know what's there. So there are lots of mechanisms in which they all tend to fail at the same time, somehow. And then when they're all failing at the same time, oh my God, it's a big problem for the economy because they can't lend anymore. And now... 
what are the alternatives? We can bail them out or it's worse. We let Lehman fail and you know, the, the, the drama of that and whether it was because you know, Paulson didn't like fault or whatever was the reason that they let this bank fail, uh, somehow it seems as if the conclusion was that it was a mistake. Now what? Now we are going to have this rescue instinct for all of them, which is incredibly distorting right there, because by now the creditors think, oh, we'll be paid somehow, and now they really don't care, and now nobody cares. And now is the situation is the way we describe uh, our generic uh, borrower, who's just a homeowner named Kate, our fictional uh, surrogate for explaining the basic principles, when her aunt guarantees her loan, she gets a cheap mortgage. The bank doesn't care about her having any equity because the bank doesn't care to be paid. And um, she tells her aunt that she doesn't want to put any down payment because then she might lose. She thinks equity is very expensive. And um, if her aunt was to give her, this is Aunt Claire in the book, uh, if Aunt Claire gives Kate, um, blanket guarantees to go borrow or whatever, and she'll always make good, Kate good, then uh, Kate will form a corporation, go have fun, even in Las Vegas, take the money up, out when it comes, and continue to borrow on the downside. Her aunt will pay until she ruins her aunt. Iceland, Ireland, Cyprus. Uh, the banks can get so big that they can take down the entire economy uh, with them. So it's very dangerous to have these kinds of subsidies where the incentives to grow and to take risk just increase the subsidies. These are the crazy subsidies to give because there's no limit to them, actually. So there has to be a fight back against the dangerous incentives that get created from these too-big-to-fail subsidies that are really, really the worst. So what to do? Well, there's all authority to do this. All we need is the will to do this. That's the hard part. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, when the banks make money, they can keep it. Most companies in the economy fund first and foremost with their profits any new investment. The banks, they want to pay. They want to pay like a borrower who wants to protect the money from the creditors and keep borrowing, because borrowing is cheaper for them, more attractive. They can keep their profits, they can raise money, or maybe they can't. Some of them may not be able to, but that's a flag. Maybe they're not viable. Maybe they're zombie banks. Zombie banks are very unhealthy. Feeding zombie banks, they tend to lend to zombie borrowers. They lend, tend to keep bad loans on their books. They don't make good loans. We want the banks to be healthy banks. The ones that are not healthy, feeding them and keeping them and nursing them back to life is a drag on the rest of the economy. And we keep doing that. Uh, some people claim that City and Bank of America, should you actually be able to remove the subsidies from them and actually look what's there, what they have and what they owe, you will find that they are insolvent, potentially. Of course, they're being nursed to life. Interest rates are very low. They can borrow very cheaply. They don't always pass on these cheap borrowing 
rates to their existing borrowers, and they have various other ways to make money. They have fees, they charge, all kinds of things. And so they can be revived uh, in that way. But meanwhile, they're not functioning that well. And all around, there are flawed incentives. The way bankers are compensated, are sort of paid to gamble, they're giving incentives. This is true about other corporations. There are all kinds of measures, the short-term profits that determine how people are paid. Oftentimes, they're not giving the best incentives, uh, even though they're supposed to be motivated by shareholder value and other things like that. So that's a governance problem anyway. So um, there are lots of other cans of worms around, and I, um, I can go into any of that. Uh, and the book does go through some of them, but not all of them. There is a lot. The book is written at a lot of levels, but a kind of idea we had was to really break everything from the very, very beginning, we remain extremely non-technical and leave a lot of the details to the notes. So really half the book is in the notes where there is both material that's just optional, even banking history or things like that, not necessarily technical, but some people are interested, some people are not. So what we kept was just on a kind of need-to-know basis. You need to continue, and the rest is either technical or just optional. The little number is there, and you can go to the back uh, and, and read some more or look at it later. Uh, the first read is, is pretty short I've, because the notes were in the bottom. The book always seemed long to me. When I saw it with the notes at the end, it was like, oh, that's a short book. So... <laughs> So, but it was good. That's what we wanted. Uh, we wanted to not lose uh, lose the reader. Now, why we wrote it for a broader audience, even though on most subjects, if there's you know the safety of airlines, we don't go to read about the safety of airline. Maybe that's more complicated than the safety of banks. Uh, but uh, again, as I said, it seemed as if a lot of people in involved in this debate were talking about politicians, were talking about commentators, uh, journalists, staffers. Uh, and maybe people in banking too uh, were had, well, the charitable way to say blind spots. They were missing some things were just, they were had mental blocks about or something. Um, or they just didn't want to think about them because they had a way of thinking about it that was kind of entrenched and they just didn't feel like changing that. Uh, how do you make them engage and how do you make them read? Well, we decided the only way is to appeal to a broader audience and create some pressure uh, for them to engage uh, in a serious debate. Otherwise, uh, we really would have to wait for the next crisis, uh, which again, two things about next crisis. First of all, we have a crisis right now in Europe. Europe can implode any day and every few weeks there is some bank that fails there, some countries, all, it's a mess in Europe, a mess. Uh, and it would impact us potentially. There are a lot of weak banks in, 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 and the weak banks are part of the weak system that they have. And so they, they have not cleaned up uh, from the other crisis yet, and they're already involved in this one. And also, we haven't done as well to clean up here uh, what, what we have. So that's, that's that. But beyond the crisis, it's not about a crisis because you can keep feeding this system. This system is unhealthy every day. The system is distorted every day. It, it's bloated from subsidies. It's not a healthy system. It is, not, it is either making too many loans or it makes too few loans. It doesn't 
function that well. It sort of doesn't like certain boring business loans because there isn't enough upside for the decision makers. It likes high-risk things. It is distorted in the decision it makes every day. So it's not doing for the economy. As part of the economy, it's not doing as well as it can. Okay, we all like our credit cards, but that's not all that there is. You know, even in credit cards, they, they get people to borrow too much. They have questionable collection techniques, all kinds of things. So anyway, the problem is that, as we have a chapter in the book, that you cannot talk about banking without talking about politics, because there's a lot of politics in banking. There's always a lot of politics in things, but I had not did not appreciate just how much politics there is in banking. Um, the politics of banking is complicated. There are some of the elements of this politics are, are kind of common to other industries. There's a lot of industries that lobby, and there's a lot of arguments that are often made in lobbying. For example, uh, you know, national champions and level playing field. We need to be competitive globally. An industry would come and would just tell the, the lawmakers that it's really important that our banks, if it's not fair if in Europe they don't regulate and we need to maintain a level playing field. Well, that's a flawed argument and we take it in the book as well. Uh, we call all the flawed arguments the banker's new clothes, so the, that's this part that we're exposing as invisible, as, as, as non-existent, uh, as, uh, as lacking substance. Uh, so there is a whole wardrobe of these bankers' new clothes. Uh, so this one is, is employed in banking too. We must be competitive with the French banks, to which I say, if the French don't want to regulate their banks, I feel for their taxpayers. Uh, that's not a reason. And my co-author was uh, for a long time in a monopolies commission in, uh, in Germany, and they have their monopolies, Deutsche Post and Deutsche uh, something. They are good in logistics and mail and all of that. And he was always saying, yes, they come to say, give us tax breaks so we can win the, the gold medal in, 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 in post. Uh, and, and to which he say, why should the German taxpayer uh, subsidize Deutsche Post to go buy DHL so letters are cheap in the U.S.? So, uh, in other words, this is not the Olympics where you hope your, your, your companies will uh, win the most medals. Uh, when the companies are competing globally, uh, that's just one level of competition, and we cheer for all the winners on their own money. But... When they compete globally and they take away resources from the rest of the economy or expose the economy to risk, they compete well by polluting the rivers or they compete well by subjecting us to risks, then uh, they're not serving us well. The Atlantic banks were successful and so were the Irish banks and so were the Cyprian banks uh, getting a lot of business from Russian uh, uh, oligarchs. And uh, that, that, that was at a high cost to the population. So um, the point being, too, that if you think of competition, the banks are competing with the rest of the economy for, most importantly, for people. And they end up potentially taking good people from other industries. So uh, the competition is for the most efficient use of the resources, including people. And it's not clear that when a physicist goes to work on bank risk models or to evade the regulation in the bank, that they're most productively employed relative to some other industries. So in that sense, the fact that banks are allowed to be winning against other industries in the economy shows somehow that they have the hold politically 
on on the rest of the economy, on the rest of the business world, on on a lot of people. So when you go to D.C., Senator Durbin would say, in 2009, frankly, Wall Street owns the place. This is what he said in 2009, right after the crisis. It's shocking. Uh, but that's the politics of it. Um, and we have that politics in the U.S. in general. Um, and in Europe, it's a different kind of politics for banking. There are some banks that are political entities. We don't have them in the U.S. In Germany, where my co-author is from, they have this thing called Landed's Banks. They're basically controlled by the politicians. And the politician, as Martin likes to say, uh, thinks that being able to pick up the phone and tell the bank what to do uh, with their money, which, of course, that's part of the politics of banking. You know, banks are where the money is, and politicians have ideas what they should do with the money, uh, is worth for the, for the politician every euro of taxpayer money that uh, they can not have any process but tell the bank what to do. Uh, and these banks are extremely inefficient and cost the German taxpayers a lot of money. So, uh, but the politicians would not unwind those banks. Uh, in this country, the politics is very much of a, of a campaign money politics, which other industries uh, lobby a lot, and other industries pay in campaign contributions in other ways. The banking industry is, is successful more than other industries, although there are a couple other industries that are particularly strong. Uh, part of the thing about bank safety is that it's, the, the dangers are very abstract. We're not talking about uh, airplanes crashing here. Uh, although the example we give in the preface is the example of the nuclear village in Japan. There was a case where uh, the nuclear disaster that followed the tsunami was entirely preventable, and the, and the investigation that went after that, you might as well replace you know, banking with what happened there. Revolving doors and collaboration between uh, the industry, the regulators, the politicians, prevented them from, from putting in safety uh, measures that would have prevented this nuclear disaster that followed the natural disaster that they had. Same here in banking. Some things we control and some things we don't control, but the risk of excessive risk and excessive borrowing in banking is highly controllable. So the risk that is included is completely unnecessary, does no good for anybody in the economy, it distorts everything. Uh, even if they end up lending cheaply, it's sometimes too much lending and they get other people to overborrow. So it's not, we want good lending. They will make you believe that all lending is good. That's not true. We want the banks to do the appropriate lending at the appropriate prices, just like we want good investments in the economy at the appropriate price that's determined in the market. So, um, so what's going to happen? I'm not sure. It seems that uh, Many want to spin it that uh, everything's fine now and we have reforms and, um, you know, there's not going to be any more crisis or bailout. This is what Obama said when he nominated Jack Lew, who claims that he doesn't understand why we had a financial crisis. Hence, I just tried to pass on a copy of the book to him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have just the book for him. Uh, <laughs> so, um, 
It's false, nobody believes it, and it's not even true. And to say Dodd-Frank tried to commit the government to not have bailouts, you don't even want to commit to these kinds of things. You want to do what you need to do as a government. You want to prevent it. Some of the fixes are amount to you know, putting corners or ambulances at the side of the road and allowing, allowing the trucks to speed through the streets. That's not the solution. If you can have speed limits, you should put the speed limits on. So we're talking about basic safety of banks, uh, highly achievable, and what we can do, help me scream. That's it. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, could you give us a, a brief history of how banks in this country got to be as leveraged as they are? Because it wasn't always 33 to 1, right? And yeah. then for comparative purposes, if you could look at the UK and Europe and see what the mechanisms are there. So indeed, it has, wasn't always like that. And, in, and the more we subsidized and guaranteed their debt, the more they borrowed. Surprise, surprise. Uh, so in the 19th century, banks were partnerships, private partnerships, uh, with unlimited liability for their owners and about 50%. Equity was common in the UK. Of course, banks here were, you know, small, and, and uh, you know, then there is this issue of money and who prints, uh, you know, banknotes versus central bank money. So all of that we discussed that a little bit in in the book. But um, as so, so the owners of the banks, even as other corporations became more limited liability for owners, so that they can be more easily funded, and you had no, you couldn't lose more than you put in as as owner, as equity, uh, as shareholder. Uh, the banks maintained a, a structure for a while, and the depositors wanted that because they wanted the money safe. That the bank owners personally would be liable, uh, and they would have to pay if they, if they lost. And so, uh, you know, there was a banking crisis in Glasgow we referred to in uh, 18, uh, 19, 1878 or something like that, where the shareholders were the ones that were wiped out. The depositors were paid out of the shareholders, act, out of the owner's actual assets. Because there was a need for banks to grow and fund wars and, and, and fund all the developments, they eventually sort of started becoming more limited liability corporations, bigger corporations. Of course, Goldman Sachs was the partnerships until not that long ago, too. So, uh, so the structure was, was, had more liability. And in the U.S., uh, the, the, depending on the state, they had double or triple or unlimited liability for the owners. So even, even through the Depression, m many bank owners or shareholders actually had to pay as much as they put in or double that or triple that or sometimes were actually personally liable for the bank notes if the bank couldn't pay for what they promised. Uh, of course, in the Depression, there were a lot of personal bankruptcies of the bank owners, and, uh, and that still left depositors uh, 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 not paid in full. Uh, and so many banks collapsed in the, in the bank holiday, and you know, thousands of banks closed, and only a fraction of them opened after the bank holidays, so that was in the 30s. That was a major bad event. Just since then, there wasn't anything like it. Uh, you know, here's the bank holiday in Cyprus right now, meaning the banks are closed, you can't get your money. Uh, I mean, that's a scary thing. Anyway, um, so later, if you look at the graphs, the, the, I mean, we didn't want to have any technical things, but you can find them easily on some of my slides, too. Uh, the equity uh, fractions 
went down to single digits over almost over the years, especially also after deposit insurance was introduced. So by guaranteeing more and more and having more protections to their debt, they could borrow more. People gave them money under those conditions more easily and with less conditions attached which is usually what stops other corporations from borrowing, is that the creditors get nervous and start constraining what they can do, how much more they can borrow, how much risk they can take, the mergers, anything they do, because creditors, I always tell my students, creditors are anxious people because here's their money and they don't have control. But bank creditors are not as worried as other creditors are. So that's, the, that's kind of why they get away with borrowing as much. But it has increased, inc the, the indebtedness, the leverage increased uh, almost dramatically and only you know, pushed back uh, a little bit by some regulation, especially um, in this country, we were lucky that, uh, that, that some of the commercial banks, the FDIC-insured banks, were a little bit better protected than the European banks. That's why European banks got into more trouble. But who was not protected in this country are the investment banks. They were very poorly regulated by the SEC. Uh, the FDIC did a better job of, uh, of supervising the banks. I wanted to know what you thought of uh, the maximum bank size uh, can be for before it's considered too big to fail. And is it different uh, sizes in different countries uh, you know, in the US, uh, EU, etc.? Uh, so a lot of people are worried about too big to fail, but it's kind of, you know, there's sort of two X to Y, you know, too big to survive, to succeed, to manage, to prosecute, to jail, to, you know, you name it, too complex to depict, you know, there are lots and lots of ways of saying the, the two X to Y. Uh, it's really the issue is not as much the size as, of course, it's sort of too systemic or interconnected. In other words, if you were worried about the inability to fail in the sense that we are afraid of this fail thing, then it's really about the contagion and about, about so being central, so uh, somehow. And some of it is size, but it's not exactly size, and it's not even about being a bank because AIG was bailed out and Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns didn't take deposits, so it's not even about being taking deposits. Uh, part of the, so, so, so there are many parts to this. In terms of efficiency and sort of scale economies, the biggest beautiful, Jamie Dimon would tell you, there is no evidence that the <laughs> banks uh, are more efficient at a scale above $100 billion. So that, but then we don't usually regulate size, but the problem with the size is the incentives, and again, it's the guarantees that are allowing that. So just like Aunt Claire would guarantee Kate would have a bigger, bigger business as long as she's not destroying her aunt. So uh, the point being that the banks have incentives to grow and they have a way, ability to grow through borrowing more and more. Uh, and so they, they, there's evidence that when they merge, they kind of the status of too big to fail is something worthwhile to have, obviously. It's very, you, you have an easy life as a too big to fail bank. People give you money easily and all of that. So it's, 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 it's a good life. So that's why we see them, so the idea of of uh, forcing them to borrow less is to reduce those subsidies and to hope that that would contain their size to some extent and potentially allow for pressures from investors to break them up naturally, just like conglomerates did, uh, which turned out to be kind of not efficient as, at that stage. But at this point, I'm sufficiently anxious about the too big to fail banks that may be hard 
caps on at least liabilities, not on, on side. I'm happy for them to grow with more, more equity, uh, would, be, uh, would, 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 would make sense. These sizes are, are really scary sizes that they get to as an institution, but they're in the size of the whole industry also to worry about. So lots and lots of little banks that all fail at the same time is just as bad. It's like too many to fail. So savings and loans were not big, but many. Yeah, so the term is, it's, it's not really, you know, about the size. It's about the fact that we can't let them fail. The, that's the problem is we want failure to be possible. We, we, the problem with these banks is the collateral damage of fail. I think there's a collateral damage even to distress, a, a damage for, for sort of functionality. But certainly fail or being insolvent, whether you actually fail or not. In other words, I'm a dangerous borrower when I owe you money and I will only have it if I go to Las Vegas and win. You know, in other words, I don't have, I'm insolvent, I don't have the resources, I owe you, that's, uh, we explain the notion of insolvency, which is a complicated notion, but I owe you, you know, $300, I, I owe you a million dollars and I only have 300,000 kind of in normal times, you know, I haven't defaulted yet, but I'm insolvent, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, it's more complicated than too big to fail, but it is incredibly dangerous, and whatever we can do to contain that, is important. Our point is that reducing leverage, reducing indebtedness is kind of the most obvious immediate thing to do uh, for these banks, is at least they will more absorb their losses on their own. Hi, Alison Ford. When the crisis hit, uh, a lot of uh, critics pointed to the role of deregulation yes. of the financial services industry, particularly in the United States, and one particular deregulation they pointed to was the repeal of Glass-Steagall. Yes. And a lot of those reformers would like to see that returned yeah. as a regulation. I'm wondering, to what extent do you think that might be a solution, or perhaps just the corner on the corner? And if that's not a solution, are there any specific proposals by maybe Senator Warren or someone that you would support that are currently on the table or at least being seriously discussed? In Germany, in some sense, they kind of have effectively a sort of Glass-Steagall. In the U.S., actually, I mean, there's nostalgia for Glass-Steagall. What happened in those years where Glass-Steagall was in effect, some of the quietness of that period was not really a result of the banks being so much better, but a result of just the time being quiet time in the economy and a growth time. So there was very little uh, uncertainty in interest rates and, and, and until, except for the savings and loans, which did happen during that time. Uh, but, but exchange rates and interest rates were not as volatile as they became later. There weren't big real estate cra crashes uh, in, in that period from 40 to, to 70, say. And so, but the Glass-Steagall has eroded before that. There were all kinds of things, you know, when the money market funds, uh, and, and there were a lot of interconnectedness within that system that kind of eroded the distinctions anyway. And so it's not clear now what a, what a glass would look like right now, but the one thing to remember, and what we make the point in the book, is that banks were, the basic business of banking with just making a lot of mortgages with borrowed money, that has, a, that's a dangerous kind of system anyway, even the old-fashioned banks. So this this uh, nostalgia is sometimes forgets that, you know, standard banking crisis are just not from derivatives or any of that, but from, from just basic real estate lending. So there are all kinds of issues there. The other thing I would remind again is what I said over here, that, the, uh, that if you had this separation, it wouldn't change the fact that Lehman Brothers was not a commercial bank. 
and AIG was not a commercial bank. So being dangerous and systemic and having us being afraid to let them fail is not, you can't, it's not by the, defini by the legal definition of who it is or even what they do, but by somehow the fact that, that we're scared of letting them fail. That was even true for a hedge fund like LTCM uh, uh, back, which wasn't quite bailed out, but still it wasn't allowed to fail in the normal way. So the, the Fed came to arrange some or something and press the banks into into kind of you know bailing it in somehow or owning it so it's 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 not as simple it's hard just doing going and chopping the, the the business into different pieces it might not solve the basic fragility of the system and that's kind of we want to focus on the fragility and also on the notion of uh of of, of fail of making it less likely to fail by by just creating sort of say keeping a system at a safer distance from from fail i agree with you debt is the problem it's really bad i read a great book called this time is different by some yes. of your peers and yes. i'll read your book next yes and so but i also believe that um and, and i and i do work for a company owned by one of the too big to fail entities i, I was wondering um you know, some business models do require some leverage and most of the commercial banks are about 10 to 11 sure. to 1 leverage right mm -hmm. now what's an acceptable level and would full implementation of something like the Volcker Rule get us there? Volcker Rule is not about leverage at all. Volcker Rule tries to con to, to to uh, to separate to disallow certain activities from from uh, commercial banks that take deposits. So, for example, you know the big debate now is the London Whale. You know, was that would have that been allowed because they were investing excess deposits? When they tell you they, don't, they won't lend, here they're not even lending the deposit money, let alone all the other money that they borrowed and have from other places. So what's an acceptable level? We, uh, this question always depends on who, who puts the numbers on, the, on those balance sheets. So we kind of talk, just to sh say that we want a lot more than what's being discussed, we go back to, to, to numbers like 20 to 30% of the total Balance sheet. People think this is crazy, but we say, show me a business in the economy that has less than that. Why should banks? Any business that doesn't have 20 or 30 percent maybe doesn't have a viable business model. So that does not interfere with taking deposits. It's still 80 percent, 70 to 80 percent debt. So you can take all deposits you want. I'm just saying some of the borrowing that happens through repos, through all these other ways of borrowing, is not necessarily the business of banking. And if they want it, they could add equity. So uh, as long as you know, it's self-insurance self at the market price instead of relying on, on, on guarantees. So back up your liabilities, basically. You know, have enough equity that you can absorb losses without needing support. So we want to just, we want to contain the safety net. We want to contain the dependence on, on guarantees so that it's a little bit of more on its own. Uh, and then, and then, I, then I'm less concerned with what they do because they can absorb their own losses. You see, I don't care about, you know, in Silicon Valley and in all kinds of companies, they take a lot of risk. They just fund it differently. So as long, you know, the internet bubble burst and it was, didn't take down the whole world. And there was more losses in the internet bubble burst than there were from the subprime, from the decrease in housing prices. It wasn't by global econ economics. It was a small actual loss that was, you know, from, from, uh, from defaults, from the housing prices going down. It wasn't that big a deal. How did it become a financial tsunami? Because there was so much debt. 
Hi, Arun Panaswamy. Uh, can you comment about the role of regulators and general perceptions of about what banks are supposed to do and not do? On the one hand, we want them to hold a lot of capital and reserves so we don't go and bail them. On the other hand, we also want them to let loose and uh, give credit when the economy does go down. Holding capital does not prevent them from lending. So holding capital, the word hold is a little confusing here because holding capital just says that they don't have as much debt and they have more, more equity to, to lend. So it's a source of funding. So it's not on the one hand and on the other hand. I want them to lend. I just don't want them to fund it with as much debt. So, uh, so I'm not stopping them from doing anything. The role of the regulation is to make sure that they're not as highly indebted and that when they, when they, when they lose some, that they don't deplete their equity, for example. I want the regulators to first and foremost hold their hands on the, on the, on the earnings and conserve. Uh, you know, this is kind of a conservation buffer that Basel has between 45 to 7% of risk-weighted assets. I want it between 20 and 30% of total assets. But uh, regulators need to steer this system. So the, here is the point, sort of the bottom line of all of this. The system must have regulation. The system is not going to self-regulate. So that's what everybody in the Tea Party and everybody needs to understand. This is a situation where people have incentives to speed and they are rewarded for speeding. We need to fight back. So, uh, so the incentives to borrow will be there and we need to just contain it, bring it back to normal levels, maintain the systems. The regulators, supervisors are in a position to do this. We just need to make sure they do it. As I'm sure you know, there is an argument that our economy runs on debt. And if we limit leverage, that we will be in a recession or worse. How do you answer that? Uh, the, this is false, actually. Uh, the, the economy runs on productivity. Uh, the economy can, fundamentally, what we want is everything productive to be funded in the economy. Yes, the banks lend to businesses, so that's debt, right? And that credit is debt. What the banks do is provide credit because debt contracts are simple contracts for the, the banks don't take equity position in the restaurant that they fund or whatever. So we want the banks to lend, but you can lend thinking of lending as an investment for the banks, you can lend with any money. And businesses in the economy, there's plenty of, of money to be invested in risky things that are productive to go around. So it's, the economy does not have to be, I mean, governments borrow, that's a different story, and that's, that's fine. But it's false that the economy needs to be funded as much with debt. It can be, the banks certainly don't need to. The, the banks can lend to the worthy businesses and individuals with money that's not in the form of debt themselves. That's, that's the main message of this book. The notion that the banks themselves need to borrow as much as they do is, is false. I'm wondering uh, why the rhetoric about and the discussion about what to do is made out to be so complicated. Don't we have a good model in Canada, which is right next door, where the banking system is incredibly concentrated? There's only four or five banks you know, similar to what we have here, and yet in the financial crisis, they came through unscathed, basically. And in terms of the too big to fail, when we do bail out these banks, even the super large ones, why don't we do it in a way where you bail them out, but you fire all the management, and you wipe out the shareholders and recapitalize them? 
Canada, uh, you know, the grass is somewhat greener, but not that much greener in Canada. So Canada is just has the, the, the banking systems are very different, uh, partly for historical reasons. The U.S. system is just extraordinarily fragmented. We have a lot of small banks, and by the way, just by the way, the small banks are also pretty inefficient. So community banks uh, are not also what they themselves crack themselves up to be. So not every business in the economy is efficient. When I asked somebody what the business model of community banks is, I was told subsidized deposit insurance. So my model for the subsidies, the large banks get implicit guarantees and they pass on some of that to the, by overpaying for deposit insurance, the uh, small banks underpay. In Canada, there is a concentrated system, and it is tightly, somewhat tightly regulated, but it is a system with not as much competition as here, and also they don't have as good the rest of the financial system as we do. So Canada is not as innovative or it's not as, as richly, sort of their financial system is not as, as, as diverse as ours, and they're actually more dependent on a few banks that uh, that are national banks over there and they keep tabs on them these banks have effectively the charter value is almost like their extra equity because it's something that they don't want to lose uh, but the regulators do seem to have a, a somewhat tighter control on the other hand it's false that they didn't get into some trouble in the crisis they did actually so it's not as discussed as much, but if you look more closely, they had some troubles as well. Not as big as European banks or even some of the American banks, but they did. In terms of the bailouts, well, uh, yes, in the, uh, I'm part of an advisory board on systemic resolution in the FDIC, and it is a condition even in Dodd-Frank right now that, that you know, in resolution, which would be sort of supposedly what we do instead of bailing out, we sort of unwind them, uh, the, that man, the, the management uh, has to go. And, but it's not, it's not always as simple because, uh, you know, next to me in the last meeting was somebody who had to deal with Fannie and Freddie, and they actually had a lot of trouble finding somebody to run it under conservatorship, uh, somebody good. So it's not that, you know, in AIG they were saying, oh, we need to pay, they, we need to maintain them. There was a big scandal about that, about, about the bonuses. But, yeah, I mean, definitely uh, the... In, in the fact that shareholders were were not, if you decide that it isn't solved now, some of the bailouts are not actually given. Uh, some some of the top money, for example, wasn't quite a bailout. I mean, it was an investment in the banks, and some of them were not insolvent at the time. Some probably were. I mean, City probably was. Others may have not been insolvent, but they were very weak, and we wanted them to lend, so we wanted to give them money. We gave them money in the form of, of, of preferred and all of that. There was a lot of you know, mixed uh, strategy over there in terms of how good this was to do. Uh, I'm not really criticizing that. But yes, I mean, what I want is I want to re reduce the likelihood of getting to this stage, uh, first and foremost, as a lesson. Uh, we now, Dodd-Frank forbids bailouts. I think that's also misguided, too. I think, you know, in any case, it doesn't even matter what Dodd-Frank says, because they can always change the law if there was a crisis. So, <laughs> I mean, that's why the governments cannot commit, effectively. This is, this is a different, they'll do what they need to do. They'll have emergency law. You know, that's what they did in the crisis, too. Uh, and then they pass it because the alternatives are worse, you know. So, um, yes, we should, they, it should be, Resembling as much as possible a, a normal failure uh, if that's the situation.
But as I said, bailouts are not always, I mean, the, you know, uh, yes, AIG would have probably, probably gone into bankruptcy. It's not clear, but, you know, why they bailed them out is a long story. But, it, it, yes, it, you're, you're, you're right, but uh, how to manage a bailout is, is usually when a lot of companies at the same time are failing, you know. Let's hope we don't have to do it again. Uh, my name is Frank Marin. Thank you tonight for your analysis, Professor. Um, a few years ago, a movie came out in Germany called The Lives of Others. It was about East German dissidents yes. and how they were oppressed. And there's sure. a very moving scene yes. in the last part of that movie where a dissident finally gets to confront his oppressor. And he makes the statement that people like you, that people like you ran a country. It's a very telling part of that movie. My question to you is this. Given what you've said about... Um, Chase Bank, their power in Congress, the uh, $700 billion bailout, the suffering caused by people that lost their homes, uh, the great amount of suffering in our country. Um, my question to you is this. What type of system allows people like that to dominate its economy? You're... Well, it's... Um... In the U.S., uh, you could read Larry Lessig, The Republic Lost, on, on this topic. It's a system uh, he calls corruptive dependencies. It's a system in which uh, uh, basically he, I, I listened to a talk by him where he, he said, here we have a democracy and we have you know, 0.5% of the people kind of determining who runs. And then 100 people can vote, but the previously the 0.5% the people, uh, you know, only decided who, who, who might run. And, of course, then those that run uh, and are in office are kind of beholden to, somewhat uh, to those people. I think it is sad, and it was very disappointing to me, that uh, in the election, in the campaign, hardly anybody talked about uh, this, about financial reform, despite the fact that Sheila Bear came out with a book with precisely the same message as ours, saying Main Street needs to tell Washington to take care of, to, to protect the economy from Wall Street or from the, from the, from the financial system. And uh, so I think that um, it's, 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 it's the system that we have in, uh, it's the, the, in a democracy like this, uh, interest groups have more interest and more resources to impact. Uh, and I've learned this uh, the hard way because if I could write comment letters, but there'll be 500 from the industry for every one of, uh, of the, you know, the few uh, nonprofit groups that try to, uh, and, and a couple of academics that try to, to find time for, for this uh, instead of doing other things. It's very disappointing. Uh, I think what, uh, what, what politicians respond to is, um, is oftentimes uh, public, um, uh, public sentiment, and so uh, that's partly why we uh, go to the public uh, to explain what, uh, what's going on, uh, because it seems like the system doesn't have enough in it to, to, to want to, to, to change that. And both parties are equally uh, to blame, unfortunately. Thank you so much. <laughs>